Most of us here have the honor of being a mother or hope to be one someday. God actually entrusts us with the life of another human being to raise for his purposes. When I think of mothering with purpose, I think of modeling godliness to our children with eternity in view. Mothering is so much more than feeding and clothing our children, although that's necessary. We want to model godliness, not only in what we teach with our mouth, but in how we live in daily life. Mary-Kate reminded me of a sign we have in our home when I told her I didn't feel qualified to do this talk. It says, God doesn't call the qualified, but qualifies the called. We are called to be godly mothers, and we are being refined in that calling every day. I am not the perfect example to follow. In fact, as the Lord brought thoughts I should share here, I would have to cry as I realized how far short I fell in my calling. So we will look into God's Word today for our mothering manual. His words are timeless. I want this time to be interactive, so I will ask questions and feel free to share with us. I will also ask someone to read certain passages, so have your Bibles handy. Here is a quote from Elizabeth George. A godly mother is one who loves the Lord with God, her God, with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then passionately, consistently, and unrelentingly teaches her child to do the same. There's some jars up here, and this one is, can you see it over there? This one is how many weeks we have with our child from birth until they're 18 and could start making critical, critical life choices without our presence. Now I want to think about Moses, Joseph, Daniel, and the little maid of Naaman's wife. They were younger than 18 when they were taken out of their home. I don't know how old they were, but they could have been the amount of marbles in this jar. Their mothers maybe had this many weeks with their children. They must have had early godly training and had convictions at a young age to make the choices they did when in a strange country and away from any godly influence. We want to make the best use of our time with our family. So right now, let's sing, We Have This Moment. And as we sing, I'm going to turn this hourglass over. I'm a visual, and so I like visual things. So we're going to see the sand slipping through the glass as we sing this song. Yeah. 
Thank you. It's beautiful. Isaiah 28.9 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. So I have a question. When do you think these children were weaned from their mother's breasts? Two. Could have been. I don't know that we know really for sure. Some people say three, four. I mean, that sounds really old. But um, this is how many marbles you have when you have a two-year-old. So we're to teach them at a very young age. I think about Hannah in the Bible. She prayed for a son, but in her prayer she vowed to the Lord that she would give him up for the Lord's service all the days of his life. Wow, how unselfish of her. So when he was weaned, she took him to the temple to live under Eli's care, and she only saw him once a year when they offered their yearly sacrifice. She didn't have very long to implant doctrine and knowledge in him. Now, Eli's sons were religious people working in the temple, so you'd think they were righteous, but in 1 Samuel 2.12, it says, They were evil and knew not the Lord. So maybe Samuel wasn't in the best situation to grow godly, but the Bible says, The child grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. I think his mother laid a godly foundation for his life. She mothered with purpose. Jochebed gave Moses up to the princess when he was weaned. God called Moses for a special purpose, but I think she had an influence on him before he was weaned. He was drawn to the people of God rather than to the Egyptians. In Deuteronomy 6, the Bible tells us about teaching our children. Can someone read Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7? shall love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So first it says we must love the Lord with all our heart, and with all our soul, and with all our might. That sounds like we need to have a passion for God before we can teach our children His commandments. Do we have a special time with the Lord each day? I like to read before my children were awake, but sometimes they woke up to see me on my knees or reading my Bible in the living room. You could have a time with your children, give them a Bible story to look at, Bible story book to look at, or if they're old enough, a devotional to read while you're reading. You are modeling for them what it looks like to worship the Lord each day. And then you could pick out one little nugget you glean to share with your children. Sing songs of praise together often. Question. What does having a passion for God look like in daily life? Anyone want to answer that? I know it's kind of... I think it looks like just what we read and just what you said. It's like the, our children see us every morning um, having our time with the Lord. Mm-hmm. I think that's important that they see that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, it doesn't stop with your morning reading. Continue through the day. That's right. I was thinking of singing as we do our work. Mm-hmm. It shows them of our love for the Lord. Mm-hmm. 
something kind of nature. I think of pointing out different things throughout the day. Like, oh, look at this beautiful flower. Creation or people in general. Like, oh, that was so nice that they chose to do that little thing like that. Mm-hmm. Show God's handiwork in other people's lives and through creation. Passion for them. Yeah. And then, what does Deuteronomy say we are to teach our children? When does Deuteronomy say we are to teach our children God's commands? What's the first one? When you sit in my house. And when are we sitting in our house? Mealtime. Mealtime. Do you sit when you do homeschool? Anybody? Maybe. Yeah. Anybody do homeschool? <laughs> Are relaxing. So then, when we walk by the way. So when do we walk by the way? When we're not sitting. (laughs) (laughs) Also, traveling in the car, going to town, going places. And then when we lie down and rise up. So when is this? Since we are the parent that is with them most of the day, we have a full schedule of teaching God's commandments. We are given children to teach them in the ways of God. This doesn't mean we take over the spiritual leadership from our husband. We are just assisting him while he has gone to work. Someone could read Psalm 78, 1 through 7. Yes. So, how many generations should be taught of God's word by us? Anybody have a guess or figure it out? Is that four or five generations? It's our fathers and then it's us. Right. But how many are we to teach then? So, it's the fathers and then us. We're their children. Generation to come is... One, that's our children. Even the children which should be born, that's their children, who should arise and declare them to their children. So, to our great-grandchildren, right. We should at least have an impact on three, at least three generations. Reading the story of Jonadab is very convicting. He had a godly impact on his posterity for at least 250 years. Raising children for God is the ultimate responsibility in this life. But in order to do this, we will need to connect to their heart of our children. Creating a nurturing home atmosphere is the foundation for having our child's heart. A greenhouse is the best place to start young plants in early spring. 
How can we make our home like a greenhouse for our children? We as mothers are creating the home environment for our family and how we relate to our husband and children. To develop a nurturing culture, we need to practice love and respect in our home. We are modeling how we want our children to act. We can have obedient children without love, but we won't have a relationship without love. To build relationships, we want to have fun times together. The world's culture around us wants to draw our children away from us. So plan a game night, go on a picnic, go camping as a family, or just sleep outside in the yard. Enjoy time together. I have 10 ideas that may help you model a loving but firm mom. The first one is pray a lot with your husband, with your children, in your closet, in the middle of conflict. Just keep praying. The second one is love and respect your husband. This brings a feeling of security to your children when they see you as a teen. They need to see God's order of authority lived out in the home. You can tell me to slow down if you're trying to get them and I'm going too fast. <laughs> Number three. Gain your children's heart if you don't have it. Think of some ways you could do with each of your children in order to gain their heart and to keep it. Here are some ideas. Fix a meal that one child especially likes and tell them you were thinking of them when you made it. Do that for each child at different times. Let them know they are special to you. If you are able, take one child to town with you at a time. Let one help you in the kitchen. Take a walk or a bike ride. Take one out for ice cream or a coffee drink. But when you're with them, look at them like they are special and talk to them about their interests. Be respectful to them. Make them feel valued. A question. What are some ideas to do for one-on-one -on -one time with your children? Any other ideas? Well, this is from my daughter, Bethany. I just wanted some ideas from her. Anyhow, and you mentioned them already, but like for their birthday, they get to go out, like the little boys, they go out with daddy and to McDonald's, and that is really a big deal. And then they have money from Grandma Gray, and they go to Tractor Supply and go shopping for some little animal or, you know, something that they can get, and that is a really a special thing. And then Bethany does the same thing for the girls, too, only it's like a tea room or something that way. And another way that I know she works on in the one-on-one time is, um, like if they have a chiropractor appointment, and she's just taking maybe one or two. Well, they make it a really special time. You know, it's stopping to get a tree, ice cream, or something. And she just really focuses in on the children that are with her, which is important when you have a lot of children. Mm -hmm. That's good. Anyone else have any ideas? I don't have down there reading, but reading to children, too, is just nice. Um, I might just make this comment that even after your children leave your home, it's nice to take them out. I like to take my daughters out. Hannah, I don't take you out much. I don't get over to Ellensburg, but the girls 
in Idaho, I take them out on their birthday, and sometimes it may be a month or two after their birthday. It's just whenever they can fit it in, but we try to do that. And Sam takes them out too. He takes out the boys and the girls still. Number four, have a structured home. Structure teach character. We are teaching children how to be successful adults. I might add that this really helps with strong-willed children. Every family has a different schedule, so one size does not fit all. I was not very scheduled in our home in our early years, but I found out that a schedule adds security to a child. Our children behave better when they know what to expect and things aren't haphazard. Tension in the home is often a result of a lack of structure and accountability. Think about the moments when you need to be somewhere and someone hasn't had breakfast or can't find their shoes or hasn't fed the dog, whatever. And then we become frustrated and tension rises. Number five, have clearly defined rules and set limits. Make sure your children know your expectations. Work with them and show them exactly how you want things done, like folding the clothes or making a bed, brushing teeth, doing dishes, etc. And then make them responsible to keep it. I had a paper in the bathroom that spelled out what a clean bathroom looked like. That helped to eliminate nagging. And you could do that in the bedroom or wherever. You could have just things so that they could go back and look when they can read. Number six, give consequences for disobedience. Consequences are not punishment. They are a learning tool. A consequence makes a path in their brain that reminds them to avoid disobedience. Every time a consequence is given, it makes that path deeper. Punishment is a meaningless task, like standing in a corner for so long. It may shame them, but did they learn anything from it? A consequence could be a spanking when they are young, but changes to a chore or something else as they get older. Now turn to Isaiah 28.10. In verse 9, we talked about teaching knowledge and doctrine to our young children. Now let's find out how to teach. Do you have it, McKenna? 28.10. 28.10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Do you notice precept upon precept and line upon line is repeated? Maybe you all want to underline that in your Bible. Children do not learn the first time and may not the second time, but it's by repetition that they learn. When our children fail or are disobedient, don't look at the problem in despair, but look at the situation as a teaching opportunity. In fact, you should expect it. Proverbs 22:15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall dar- drive it far from him. So your child comes prepackaged with foolishness, and we are expected to remedy that with a consequence, a spanking. Be consistent with consequences. If they can get by with something one day but not another day, it's confusing to them. Also, 
If they can get by with something at home but not at someone else's house, they become frustrated. How can they trust someone who isn't the same every time and everywhere? What if 2 plus 2 didn't always equal 4? Being consistent with consequences helps their brain learn cause and effect. This helps them think for themselves and be responsible. If I hit someone, what will happen? If I'm disrespectful, what will happen? A natural consequence they soon learn is, if I touch a hot stove, I will always get burned. They will learn so much faster if you are consistent. Number seven, listen first before drawing conclusions. We aren't always as wise as Solomon, but listen well to your children. You won't be perfect, but do the best you can and apologize if you find out you are wrong. Hearing is with the ears. Listening is with the heart. Number eight, reward your children for obedience and good character with praise and approval. When we praise them, they will want to do better. Don't praise for God-given things like good-looking or strong, things like that, but praise for their good choices. Good character is a choice. Let them know their obedience and good character makes you happy. Number nine, always discipline with love, never in frustration or anger. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And then Proverbs 23.13 says, Withhold not correction from the child, So we need to discipline for disobedience, but do it in a loving and respectful way. Can someone read Proverbs 13, 24? He that spareth his rod feedeth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Does anyone know what betimes means? Betimes means promptly. So if we discipline right away, we don't get frustrated. Frustration leads to anger. I would recommend this book, if you don't have it, Proverbs for Parenting, for using during correction. It gives Bible verses, and it's here so that you can come look at it if you want, see if it's anything you're interested in. It gives Bible verses for different behavior. Then it's not just what we say or what we're trying to tell them, but we can let our child know what God thinks about the behavior. Number 10, communicate in a warm and understanding way. We want a calm home in our loving environment. They say 93% of our communication is nonverbal. That was surprising to me. And of that 93%, 55 is our body language. Our arms crossed, our hands on our hips can be intimidating and is a manipulation manipulation tool. But we don't want to manipulate our children into better behavior. We want to soften their heart. Also, our eyes communicate our emotion. We can shoot daggers at our children with our eyes so they will know we don't like what they did or said. This could make our child wilt or make them defiant. But we are, what we're trying to do when we do that with our eyes is manipulate them into better behavior. Try practicing having soft eyes when we speak words of correction. This helps keep our children calmer and not reactive. 
Our tone of voice is 38% of our nonverbal communication. How loud and how fast we speak have their effect on our children also. When we are upset, our voice raises and we tend to talk fast. So when in conflict, remember to breathe deeply, slow our speech down, and choose our words carefully. Seven. Could you repeat? I've got the 93% communication is nonverbal, and then body language is what percent? It was 55 of that 93. 55. Uh-huh. And then 38 is our tone of voice. Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, and then just 7% is verbal. Spoken words have power and consequences. Their impact is mighty and they penetrate hearts. We can use words of life or words of death. How we see our child and talk to him has a significant effect on how he thinks and acts. When our children feel valued, their behavior usually is positive. Someone can read Proverbs 16:21. Mm-hmm. The wise in heart shall be called prudent in the sweetness of the lips. Mm. Of yeah, okay, that was my one, the sweetness of their lips. Okay, then go on and read 23 and 24. The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth and addeth learning to his lips. Pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Yeah. When we speak kindly, our children's minds are open to learning. If we are shaming, critical, or sarcastic, they shut us out but they learn to talk that way to their friends or siblings. And later, they may respond to us and other authorities that way when they become teenagers. And then it may carry on to their parenting, to their children. Shaming is not correction. Shaming attacks their character and disconnects our children's hearts from ours. We may need to go to our room to pray before correcting to calm our own heart, save our yelling for an emergency. When our children are small, we can get down on one knee and call them to us or go over to them and get down. Speak slowly and calmly to correct them. I remember watching another young mother when we lived in California. She didn't yell across the room to get her child's attention. She quietly went over to them and spoke to them. When they needed discipline, she didn't shame them in front of others but took them quietly out of the room. So now let's think about attitudes. Those are hard ones when our child is stuck in a bad attitude. Sometimes we can just ignore it if they are still being obedient. But could we model behavior to them to help pull them out of the rut? Singing, smiling, or talking softly and kindly may help. Someone can read Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. So question, does anyone have good tips for handling bad attitudes? (laughs) (laughs) Right now I'm talking about our children. That's good. Yeah. I think sometimes 
calling them to prayer. Um, it's not always what I feel like doing when several of mine have a bad attitude. It can just feel, I don't know, that I guess my <laughs> human instinct is to want to be more uh, harsh or soldier-like and just execute the attitude. But I think just gently calling to prayer and just say, like, I, I think that the Lord has something more for us here as a family. I think that that has a, a calming um, way of just honoring the child and helping them see that this is how serious we, we take it. We need to call on the Lord for this. Mm-hmm. I don't always do it, but mm-hmm. it has, has been effective. In mm-hmm. And that's a faith builder when it does work like that. It's just like God's there in the midst of that. And so if we have a bad attitude, we just stop and say, okay, now let's do this differently. And then we just work through that situation with good attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps sometimes. Mm-hmm. They can feel that difference of the sourness, and then they can feel the difference of the goodness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very good, yeah. Okay, Mindy. Do mothers ever have bad attitudes? How do we act to our children when we aren't excited about teaching school, or when the children don't do their chores, or when a distraction comes in our busy day? Do we model a good attitude through trials? Someone please read Proverbs 15, 28. So I don't think we necessarily say evil words, but maybe we just don't say them real kindly or whatever. The Bible speaks of one area we should not have a bad attitude. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Use hospitality one to another without grudging. We want to teach our children positive things about hospitality. Hospitality is the place where our family can encourage the saints and to be a beacon of light to our community to draw others to Christ. We want to model this area well to our children. The mother in the home sets the temperature for the greenhouse. Let's pray that our greenhouse can be warm and inviting to our children and guests. I found several godly mothers in the Bible. I already mentioned Hannah and Jochebed. But in 2 Timothy 1.5, it says Eunice and her mother, Lois, instilled their faith into young Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul said that Timothy, from a child, and that word child in the Greek meant infant, knew the Holy Scriptures. It appears they started teaching before he was weaned. Also in the Bible are stories of young children who had faith. I'd mentioned them before. Daniel had purposed in his heart that he would not eat the king's meat, some of which would have been unlawful for a Hebrew. He and the other three Hebrew children had convictions of faith that they would not compromise, even if it meant death. They may have been young teenagers when they were captured and taken to Babylon. The little maid of Naaman's wife had a faith in God that caused her to speak about him so that her mistress' husband could be healed. All these children must have had godly mothers that taught them at home and were continuing to pray for them after they left their home. What would our children do in these circumstances? Have they been taught enough to stand alone on their faith? Question. Can anyone think of ideas on how to instill faith into our children? 
our lives and we talk about it, talk about him, that he'll be real in our children's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just, I'll give an example. I, I don't know how it happened, but this is just an example of my faith as a little child, which came from my mother. But it's before I even could rationalize things. But when I was a little girl, <coughs> my bigger brother <coughs> took a BB gun out and was shooting birds. And I knew he was shooting up in the sky. And I was afraid he would shoot God because I knew God was up there. So, you know, that's a very young mind. Mm -hmm. Um, realizing that God is there and not understanding, but it, it's the faith of a two-year-old or three-year-old. I remember one of my sons, I can't remember if it was Josh or Jamin, and I know it was Julie, was the girl, so they're on both sides of her, but they were in our pump house, and the door would stick sometime, and they had gone in to get something, I kept my canned goods out there in Ellensburg, and they tried to open the door and couldn't and couldn't and were crying and yelling and it was a ways away from the house. No one could hear them. And finally, they just said, well, let's pray. And they just got down on their knees right in there and prayed. And then they went and pushed on the door and it opened. And they had mentioned it to me the other day that they remembered that. And that was just a faith builder for them. There are also mothers in history that modeled their faith to their children. Susanna Wesley was one. She took her devotion to God and to her children seriously. For two hours every day, she had fellowship with God and time in His Word. As soon as her children could speak, they were taught to say the Lord's Prayer. They read from the Bible and sang twice a day. She homeschooled her children until they went to college. She gave one hour per week of individual time with each of her 10 children. Nine of her 18 children died in childbirth or infancy. Can you imagine being pregnant 18 times and then having nine funerals while you are recuperating? Twice her home was burned down, losing everything they owned. She was married to a man who couldn't manage money. He would leave for long periods of time and left her to raise the children alone. Sadly, several of her children had poor marriages also. Two of her sons became well-known. John Wesley preached to nearly a million people bringing revival in his day, and Charles Wesley wrote over 9,000 hymns, many of which we still sing today. Maybe because of her devotion to God and disciplined life, he wrote this hymn. In our church book, it's titled, The Christian's Charge. And here it's page 488. Let's sing it together. A charge to keep I have.
Thank you again. It's beautiful. We want our children to get along with each other and not to hold grudges. In Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and many be defiled. Bitterness is simply the result of not seeing suffering from God's perspective. Bitterness is subtle, and they say bitter people don't know they're bitter. That sounds scary because many are defiled by it. Defiled means contaminated. Forgiveness is the key to unlocking the spirit of bitterness. Proverbs 17.9 says, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. When we cover for someone's transgression, we are quiet about it. But when we share with our children, we give them a burden that they don't have the grace to overcome, and they may become bitter over it. Someone can read Ephesians 4.32. Well, someone else could look at Colossians 3.13. We'll read that next. Go ahead. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now, instead of a spirit of bitterness, we can be tenderhearted, and our children won't have to carry that baggage. So could someone else read Colossians 3.13? Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Yes. And Jesus gives a stern warning in Matthew 6.15, but if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We need to model the spirit of forgiveness to our children. Mothers are very busy with normal household duties, homeschooling or helping at their church school. Or So how do we model caring for others outside of our household? How do we fulfill these commandments? Galatians 6.2, bear ye one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. Could someone read Romans 15.1 and 2? We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Good. Someone else could read John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are mighty saviors if you have loved one to another. We want our children to care for others and not just to be self-focused. Question, what are some ways to help our children see needs and care for others? We want to take something small to the neighbor. Don't discourage it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your neighbor probably loves it. <laughs> That's special. That's neat. Very good. Yeah. (laughs) 
What would your children say you enjoy doing? Are they included in that activity? What do we model? My mother was a help to my dad. She took in ironing and they had a bookstore to put him through medical school after they had three children. I was born when he was finishing up residency to be a family physician. I was number five. Some of the years as I was growing up, mom worked in his office as a receptionist or even his nurse. After high school, I worked full-time in his office as a receptionist, so dad would often joke to people that this was a family practice. One thing my mom modeled was helping her husband in his work. She was dad's cheerleader, too, for his other interests, and I appreciated that. In my last year of school, I took an accounting class and really enjoyed learning bookkeeping. When I married Sam, I started doing bookwork for Ray Plumbing and Electric. The business was located at Sam's mom's place, so when Jeremy was born and then Gina, mom would have the children with her while I worked in the shop one or two days a week. When the business moved to a new location, the men found another bookkeeper. Fast forward to moving to Ellensburg. Now we had Jamin and Julie also. We started homeschooling Jeremy and Gina there, but we're also busy with lots of company to our new area, farming, and finding new doctors, dentists, places to shop, etc., besides normal household duties. As more people moved into the area, we as a group started a Christmas craft sale. I helped Jeremy make some wood things to sell, besides making things myself, helped with the lunch we served to the community, and also took on bookwork for the craft sale. I was not a very good keeper of our home during that time of year. Meals were not on time, the house wasn't straightened up, etc. I enjoyed that busyness for a few years and then realized it wasn't my time of life to be putting my energy there. While I was expecting Josh, Sam started a part-time plumbing business on the side of farming. I did the bookwork in our home. We got a computer and through many tears and frustration, I learned how to do the book work on a computer for a couple of years. As the business grew, we hired a bookkeeper. When we had Janae, our bookkeeper quit and God blessed us with Becky Helmuth to be the teacher for the children while I again did the book work. Within a couple of years, I taught Becky how to do the book work. When Janae was 13, we moved to Idaho. Now there were boys living with us along with Josh and Janae and I was doing normal household duties doing the book work for the ministry, having lots of company, and again, finding a new place to shop, etc. Now, when I say I did the book work, that wasn't every day or even every week. But when I ran into a problem, it could take hours to get the problem solved. And that was time I wasn't involved with my children. I enjoyed my children and tried to do fun things with them. But I was a busy mama, just like my mama modeled for me. I could have enjoyed my children so much more if I didn't wear so many hats. Doing the book work added a stress in my life, even though I enjoyed doing it. But I don't have the ability to change what I did. Every couple needs to decide what things are most important to them and to do what seems best as they keep their children's eternity in view. Some families desperately need extra income to survive. but. Some mothers get bored with the mundane life of children and household chores and choose to work outside the home. Do they feel entitled to spend the extra money only on themselves, more clothes, shoes, decor for the house? Jesus loved the poor. Here's a few verses about what God thinks about the poor. Proverbs 19:17, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord. 
Proverbs 22.9, He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. Proverbs 28.27, He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. 1 John 3.17, But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his vows of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? What are we modeling to our children in our extra work and what we spend money on? I don't ask this to shame anyone or to put a guilt trip on anyone. I don't know any of your situations. I just want to encourage mothers to love and enjoy their children and consider the extra things that may bring distraction or stress to their lives. You will never regret not doing extra things, but we also want to teach our children to reach out to those that are poor. I've mentioned several women of the Bible who taught their children godly things. There are other women in the Bible whose example didn't seem to be toward godly things. Lot's wife's heart seemed turned toward the worldly society and her children who wouldn't leave Sodom. Job's wife's heart seemed turned toward good health and comfort. Sapphira's heart seemed to be turned toward wealth and looking good to others. Where do our children see our heart turned to? Do they see interest in things of this life or in things of eternal value? Our world has changed since I had my children. Smartphones have entered into the lives and can go with us wherever we go. Technology can be destructive to the family because of the distraction it brings. We can get caught up in something online and miss out with our little ones, or big ones for that matter. Our children grow up so fast, and we want to be a part of their story. We should be present mentally and emotionally when we are with our family. I was glad for WhatsApp when we went out of the country and when Julie lived in Guatemala. When I learned what the status was all, was all about, I enjoyed seeing what others posted. Now I have muted those who post every day or I'm not close to. I consider that a distraction to my day. I do enjoy the pictures and videos I get from my family so I can enjoy being a part of their lives, especially from those I don't live close to. I have also unsubscribed too many things in my email, and I need to do more of that. I know enough about Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest that a lot of time could be spent there. Blogs are interesting, too, but I don't think we see the whole picture. We only see a portion. They can clear off one corner of the room to make their pictures, and in your mind, you think the whole house looks that way. The children are always dressed, posed, and smiling, so darling. We usually see just the outside of other families. We don't see the inside. And that's okay. We don't have to see the nitty-gritty of others' lives, but we have to make sure we stay content with our life. Sure, there's probably room for improvement in all of our lives, but that is in character and godliness and not in material things or things of this world. We have a friend in his early 30s who works in security for a software company called Dropbox. He doesn't have a smartphone because of what he knows about them. His wife has a clear phone that looks like a smartphone but isn't connected to Google, and I'm not for sure what all that is. I've seen it, but I don't understand it really. This man is not a Christian, but he's a thinker and has good values. He doesn't want to subject his family to someone doing all their thinking for them. He said, no one wonders about anything anymore. They Google anything they want to know and have instant answers. But do they really need to know that information? 
Also, young people don't ask anything of their elders because they can find out the answers instantly on their own. This leads to an independent spirit. I remember talking to an Amish friend about their phones. She said they used them to pass on information needing to go out, but they saved visiting for when they were face-to-face. I could appreciate their stand on that. Talking is better than texting because you can hear the emotion with the words and is less apt to be misunderstood. But when talking face-to-face, we can see and hear, and we have more relationship with that person. I do text for short communication, but I prefer talking when catching up with someone. Bible apps can be nice for reference, but if we want our children to know we are reading the Bible, I suggest we use our Bible. What are we modeling to our children with our use of technology? One mother told me she doesn't turn on her phone until she has finished her morning devotions. Question. Does anyone want to share how you use or don't use technology? teenagers um, how they handle it and they just have a, a charging station in the kitchen and so that's where the phones are charged everyone's the teenagers and no phones in bedrooms or bathrooms or um, anything like that I don't know what all else they might have but they have that much in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very good iPhones, at least you can set time limits on a lot of things, or um, have things that turn off on at nighttime. Mm-hmm. You can set it for your children, but you can set it for yourself. Mm-hmm. You can unlock it if you need to, mm-hmm. but you can uh, limit what you automatically go to at certain times of day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a helpful tool. Mm-hmm. And no phones at mealtimes was another thing I forgot, but that was... Mm-hmm. I think it's important for any age of children to look at them when you're talking to them or when they're talking to you. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had a journey with our phones. Um, we had full-blown everything several years ago when we had three little children. And we, we noticed it was really um, picking our family apart. Um, we would sit on our phones in the evenings and not interact with them. And, so we limited everything way back, and, and we now we're very cautious. Um, but there's still the tendency, like I'll be reading a text and someone says, hey, mommy, you know, and I'll be like, what? You know, and texting back. <laughs> and so I think it's just important to, to, like Jane said, you know, set time limits or just set it in a certain place and don't look at it until you're alone. Or because if we're valuing our phone more than we're valuing our children, they're going to pick that up really quickly. Even if it's unintentional. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can express this correctly, but something that I appreciated about what something our brothers say at our brothers' meeting is, especially with technology, is what is the bigger yes? If you're going to say no, why are you saying no? And what is the bigger yes? And so that's a good thing to think about too with technology. Mm-hmm. It does. It was kind of like was said today about relationship um, building, with especially in the areas where people say absolutely no phones, and the phones are coming into their homes. They need to build relationship to fill to fill that void. Mm-hmm.
Many mothers in our church are homeschooling, and I'm behind them all the way. Make it enjoyable. Spend time with your husband or another homeschool mom and plan out your strategy. Learn to be a good homeschool mom. I wish I had learned how to be a better one. I heard a mom recently talk of her homeschool journey. She said their school hours are from 8 to 12. She doesn't do anything else during those hours. If she does, she often gets distracted by other things and isn't in with her children when they need her, and then they get distracted. She keeps them motivated to get their school done by noon if they want her help. If they aren't done, they will have to work at it without her help in the afternoon. She has a two-hour quiet time in the afternoon. Young children take naps, and older children can read or play outside. Her teenagers may work on projects, but inside the house, it is quiet. She may get a nap if she has been up with a child in the night, or she can read or do something else. She likes her family to take a break from school a day to a week every one and a half to two months of school. This gives them motivation to go at it again. Having been a homeschool mom, I know the pressures of getting school done on schedule, but the most important thing was to learn and understand. Everyone's homeschool journey is different. Question. What are the motivators you use for your children to get their work done in a timely manner? Can anyone answer that? I know there's not, everybody's not homeschoolers here, but for those that are. Sometimes we just have to do the old fashioned, you know, set the timer when I just gets going, but that doesn't feel very um, creative, but sometimes it gets to the point where they just need to know that there's a, um, there will be a consequence if they can't be done by a certain time. Um, however, Sometimes I think maybe that produces more just um, quantity, not quality. <laughs> um, but I've done different things. I think like you uh, mentioned earlier, trying to keep it fun, and that I think can be a huge challenge, but sometimes just stopping, taking whatever you're doing and say, like, let's take this outside or um, do it somewhere. Do your next class in an unusual spot or <laughs> kind of something to um, stop and jolt the environment a little bit. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Does anyone have tips in making school enjoyable? Anyone else? You can answer either one. <laughs> well, it helps to have curriculum that is geared towards your child's learning style. Um, that's really important. If they're mismatched, then it's going to be a frustration for both of you. Um, some curriculums are just more fun for a younger child. Um, I was working with Jack just this week, and he was supposed to spell some words aloud to me, and the curriculum said for him to hop for every letter that he said. So, you know, a little boy sitting in school, and he gets to hop for every letter that he says. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> That's good. And speaking of that, when we moved to... we. Our children went to school in the mountains in California. And then, let's see, Gina was in first and fourth. Jeremy's must have been in fourth. We moved up, and then we were going to homeschool. And so we finished up Abeka. And then those that were moving up after us that were homeschooling brought CLE. So the children wanted to change to CLE, so we did. And I thought, okay, we're going to do all the same. And even after the school came, we still homeschooled. It seemed to work for our family with farming. And um, anyway, it just did not work for Gina. 
um, CLE. It was just dry and I could give her a test orally. I mean, I'd give it to her and she'd flunk it. So then I would give it to her again and do it orally and she would get them right. And so then I would think, I don't know why I thought she had to do it on paper, but I thought, okay, now we're going <laughs> to do it again, you know. It just didn't work. But when I changed to other things that were more interesting, and I think CLE is more interesting, colorful now than it was back then. But um, it just, yeah, it didn't work. So we kind of had mix-match thing. I was able to go to Mount Vernon, and there was a two-story, three-story house up there, and the different levels were different um, books. And you could just sit on the floor and look through all these Bob Jones books and just different books and decide, oh, this looks fun. And so anyway, that was kind of fun. It was a ways away to drive, but it's a pretty drive. One of the um, funnest things that I did, I don't know if I students picked up that I did it on days that were harder for me or not, <laughs> but give me a little break and they seemed to learn well, was... Um, I would take a section, divide it up between the students, have them study it for 15 minutes, and then come back and present that information to the rest of the class. And sometimes they had guidelines. But I think you could, that was in a classroom setting, but I think you could alter that for some homeschool settings. And they had a little chance to kind of be the one in charge. And sometimes we'd add drama, you know, okay, you have to have a whiteboard illustration, you have to have. a hand motion and you have to have a rhyme or something like that. But they would come up with some creative things, but it was fun for them. And kind of like Joanna was saying, the little jolt of it being something um, different. And they told the information, which like we learned about the accountability thing this morning, um, they were verbalizing it and it wasn't just me lecturing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, any of you that plan to teach, I think she'd be a good resource for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one last thing I thought about modeling to our children is self-denial. Someone can read Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Thank you. When I think of self-denial, I think of food. I have to make a conscious effort to say no to extra food to not be gluttonous. That can come hard if there is chocolate around. I read about a family that wanted to teach their daughters how to say no to some things. So they decided that at supper that night, until supper the next night, they would see what they could do, say no to over an urge, no matter how small, and stick with it. When they got together to report, one daughter, who loves to talk on the phone, limited herself and said no to extra time because she had homework to do. Another re reported that at the school lunch table, one of the girls began to say unkind things about another girl. She thought about adding her own two juicy scents, but thought, no, that's not the right thing to do. The dad reported that since he had a late night conference call the night before, he didn't want to get up to run for his daily exercise. Then he remembered their family decision and decided he could say no to more sleep and got out of bed. The mother reported that she had gone shopping that day and saw a belt she really liked. 
She didn't really need it, but it was on sale. She decided to say no, and she put it back on the rack. In this world of affluence, we have the opportunity to buy what we want and go when and where we want. Is this good for us? Do we ever say no to ourselves? Question. Does anyone want to share how they practice self-denial? if you know you're entering into something that's likely to be a temptation whether that's a shopping day um, just praying about that that your choices will be wise or um, phone usage those are two things that I've thought about that it just if you know that's a temptation already giving that thing over to prayer and then making it like harder harder to get to is another thing you can do you can do that with your phone just making it not so easy to pull an app up if it's a time waster or delete the app for a week um and then sometimes that's told me, okay, that's an idol apparently in my life because that was really hard for me to delete. I wanted that thing so bad. And I realized how much it had gotten out of it. It has become not a tool but a, an idol. Things I thought of. Mm-hmm. I think fasting really teaches self-denial too. And I've actually known some, some fairly young children that when the parents were not eating because they wanted to pray about something and the child, you know, that was a big thing on their part too. Mm-hmm. And bless their hearts, I've known some little children that decided they didn't want to have dinner. They wanted to pray about this. Mm-hmm. So they were fasting too. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, that's just, that's pretty big when a young child chooses to do that and they really want to. Mm-hmm. Another question I had along that line is when we do practice self-denial, are our children aware of it? And maybe that's hard to do, but if we want to model self-denial, do we need to explain? I don't have answers for that, but just wondered what anybody else thought. There's certainly a time to. Um, I mean, maybe there's something personal at times that we would rather not be in communication with them over. But I think if if we're truly going to model it, um, I do think that we have to sometimes communicate that often, maybe. I think of even phone usage. There's been times that I think, no, like I've just had too many things I'm looking up, stuff I'm responding to. and, you know, the girls will say, hey, Mom, let's look up, you know, something that they're interested in or we've talked about. And they'll say, no, like, let's not right now. I just feel like I've had my face near my screen too much today. Um, just a small thing. But I think it's really healthy for them. Mm-hmm. Or for me, with <laughs> losing baby weight, I sometimes, you know, they'll be, you know, making, my girls will be making good things. And I'll just say, no, you know, I, I cannot have that right now. It will not be a blessing to me. Um, I don't always do that when I should. But I do think that um, 
it's healthy for them to see it and to be in conversation over it mm -hmm. um, so that they can so that we can talk over how it works out practically mm -hmm. in our lives mm -hmm. In all of this, we want to model biblical behavior to our children and pass down our faith to them. We want them to have a passion for God and love others. Psalm 127.3 says, Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. So what are we going to do with our heritage? Fast forward 10 to 20 years when they are adults. What have we modeled to them? What will their interests and values be? What will their memories of home be? What will they model to their children? Let's sing hymn number 651. That's fine. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us when we fail. Thank you for these mothers that want to please you and raise up a godly seed who will also raise up another generation of Christ's followers. Bless them as they love and respect their husband. Bless their husband as he leads their family, that together they will have a home with a candle burning brightly in this dark world. May we all be faithful in our calling to be mothers with purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.
we have about eight minutes if there's any questions. teaches them to do better, except they had to stand there. Um, so I would try to think of something that they could do. And um, I don't know how I give you a good answer, but in, in things that your children do, if you and Troy could even think of the things the children do consistently that you don't want them to do, um, or even if there's decisions you want, how you want your family to be, if you can write them down and then make a consequence. And one thing we learned, we had a, a um, angry son and we took a class on how to help with consequences and things. And so we went through these um, CDs and I don't know if there was 12 of them. And, and then at the end, we could call in and tell them what we had done for a consequence, and they might say, you know, that is really too much. A consequence is to get their attention and to teach them not to do it again. And so that's just what I'm going by, our experience there. But anyway, in, in writing out um, consequences, uh, writing out rules, standards that you want your family to abide by, and then each of those things, a consequence. And I'll just give a, one with us was um, curfew. And so um, 11 o'clock was curfew. And if it was five minutes after 11, there was a consequence. And that meant the next time that it was 1030, they had to be in. Well, it didn't take too many times like that to know that five minutes meant 30 minutes the next time. Um, that was one that you used kind of the same thing. So I would have to think about school, what you could do um, that would kind of relate to school. Does that make sense to you at all? It does. I would, I would love some ideas. I don't want to take up the whole time, but just when they're irritating each other, it seems like their interactions are the most. Yeah. The boys at the ranch then, if they didn't get up, they had to get up themselves, had, all had alarm clocks. If they didn't get up in time, um, then they had to go to bed a half hour early. Well, they didn't want to do that. So that might happen to them one time and they, they would, you know. So it's not like it's a harsh punishment. It's easy. Um, yeah. Those are really good examples because they connect, you know, like the consequence really connects with the failure. It's like, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Often you see you put someone in jail, and I forget what the percentage is. They just do it again and go back in. They really haven't learned anything. There's no rehab. It's just time spent 
just pay your fine. And so that's kind of the difference between punishment and a consequence. Consequence is just more of a learning um, that you want it to connect with their brain. Did that answer for you? Mm -hmm. But having things written down, then in the moment, you just see what you're going to have for that consequence, and you don't have to rack your brain for something to do. I have a question to know. Mm -hmm. um, when we went to Costa Rica with you, or me and Janae, probably 10 years ago, I just remember um, you just delighting in Sam so much, just laughing at his jokes. And it, was, it was just fun and funny. <laughs> and just you just enjoyed being around with him. I don't know, I was just thinking tips or um, experience for like reverencing, respecting, delighting in our husbands when there's maybe like major miscommunications or the air is tense or your my feelings are hurt or um, conflict. I don't know, especially as my children get older. I, I think I start, I'm starting to think about that more. And it's hard when your children are home all day to have time. I remember times when Sam would come in, we need to talk, and so you'd go in the bathroom or whatever, and you just feel like you don't have time. So we took time away. Um, might go out for supper. Sam was very good at, um, and I know this doesn't help in conflict right here, but that usually in January, uh, when we lived in Ellensburg, we'd go to Leavenworth, and it was just dead. Nobody there, but we'd get a little cabin and stay in it for probably two nights. It wasn't very far from home, but, and we could talk about things. We could talk about our children, what we saw, um, areas we thought we could help in, areas with each other. We did our finances and we did goals of what um, we wanted to do in the next year. Um, I would just say communication. Um, if you can, and sometimes that is humbling ourselves um, to communicate. Um, Sam's going to go over something tomorrow that I'm kind of excited about, and um, we did together just recently because we had done it with couples that come, and then we decided, you know what, we should do this ourselves, and it was, it was good. It's not that we don't ever have conflict <laughs> either. Uh, yeah, there's times, but um, Sam does good at making sure we communicate um, and and that's probably gotten better over the years too. I have another question. I, I feel kind of funny asking this because it's probably like different for every family and even every child but I don't have a better place to ask it. Um, just an age that you wouldn't that you no longer spanked your sons and your daughters. too tricky. You mentioned that as they get older, different consequences versus the spanking, and I'm just curious, and maybe other women here too could answer mm -hmm. that. Our, we might have done different children different ways. Um, I don't know. Do you guys? You sisters? <laughs> um, one of our daughters was 13 when she had her last spanking by Luke. I had a spank an older son for I don't spank a son past about 10, um, but 
it's been different with different people. I think that's a good answer. With boys, it's easy to tell because the mom and the boy. There's something God given about a boy, too, that they are. Independent, I want to say, I don't know if that's the right word. Or, but they're, and so I found that with our boys, I don't know what age, 10, 11, 12, that um, I would maybe observe something that they did and may not say anything and then tell Sam when he got home and let him take care of it. Um, so there just wasn't that friction. I was taller, you know, than sometimes a 10-year-old I would have been. And, um, but... Anyway, it's not your size. It's just that connection, I guess, with them. And, and I, I think Sam did a better job anyway taking care of it. Even with my girls, though, I would say, too, you know, he could talk to them. And um, maybe there was a relation there that they just accepted it from him. I, yeah, only have about three that... <laughs> don't get spanked um, at this point, but I, I started to feel a, a, like a sense in my spirit that even like with my son, especially, it was almost, it was a bit of like more shaming to him, and it was awkward just even in his personal space more. Um, I just started like, I don't know, um, just even the last couple spankings specifically, were, Kent did. It's kind of the same thing. I don't know. I just. I don't know if you, I would guess I would ask if you just kind of felt that way too, like just started to feel maybe um, like I was going to shame him more than have any <laughs> level of effectiveness because it was kind of a violation to his his body, I guess. Mm-hmm. Kind, of like, uh, kind of his manliness. Yes. Yeah. Luke is always telling me, you, your, your sons are becoming men. Mm-hmm. Don't treat them as boys. Treat yes. them as a man. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's been really hard for me to learn because I still feel like my boys. <laughs> but but I'm hopefully learning to treat them like men and let Luke, they are learning to be dominant. And even though I'm their mother and they do do a good job respecting me, I'm not, it's not really effective for me to be the one giving out the discipline because of just the roles of, of men and women. If you don't have their hearts and they're very old, it'll just make them angry too. I would say we've learned the last four years, maybe. Um, I don't think there's any adopted children here, but adopted children depending on what is in their past, even in the womb, can see spanking as um, abusive, yes. They don't see it as love. And um, it's just really interesting. Um, And so 
anyway, I just put that out for whatever it's worth, but can anger them and drive them the other way. And not all adopted children, but it seems like more and more is getting that way just because of the world we live in. And so. Yes. Do you have time for one more? You know, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned, um, maybe, I forget if it was when you were talking about maybe another mother up in the mountains that she would never yell across the room and maybe you said she never liked discipline. She would always take him out to discipline. Do you recommend disciplining like in front of people? Maybe it's more of an age, like a cutoff. I feel like in a younger age, like Ty right now just doesn't understand if I go take him to spank him. But I feel like maybe it's more of an age thing, like you just start knowing. But is there, yeah, would you ever discipline your child in front of someone, even like Tate? Yeah, pro probably right at the moment, because they're so young that you want them to, to recognize that what they did and the, the discipline where, you know, once, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you're right. Yeah, I just said, now if you feel like you kind of know on your child, like when you should take them somewhere else, like if they're old enough to understand. Yeah, it was five or six, four years old that she was, yeah, I just appreciate that because sometimes you just hear somebody just yell their child's name across the room and, and she was just, it was just noticeable to me that we don't have to yell at them. Um, we can just go over there and talk to them quietly and get their attention and and maybe you all do that anyway. But. This is supportive of um, the eye contact thing. But I've heard that eye contact releases oxytocin, which is the bonding hormone. Um, so even like, you know, you think nursing a child, nursing a baby, that releases oxytocin. But eye contact is another thing that does. And so I've, I've just noticed like, even like little Kena, when I'll give her her sippy cup, sometimes she'll just look, her little eyes will just, the whole while she's tipping that cup up, she'll just be looking right into my eyes. And I just think, well, there's bonding happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know that. When I nursed Gina, or just when she was a baby or young, she just would look at me and look at me. I don't remember my other children as much as I just remember her just always looking and looking, and that's just interesting. She's right into your eyes. <laughs> Well, thank you. May God bless you as you mother with purpose.